All right, if you have your Bibles, um, I'm going to give you like 401 verses this morning, and so you're not going to be able to keep up. But um, we're going to be primarily, if you want to look up references that I give to you, we're going to be in Daniel and Revelation uh, for a good uh, portion of our time. Um, I want you to know that, um, well, this is our second in a four-week series in which we're studying the major themes in prophecy. I had somebody say to me this week, well, you know, why don't you just do like a 12-week series? Well, you remember what I said about prophecy last week, that we have a tendency we can go on one of two extremes. One extreme says that we're so infatuated with prophecy that we make God's word say things that it doesn't say. I don't want to be there. The other extreme is that we go, you know what? I believe in a preacher of rapture. I'm going to be out of here. Therefore, I don't really care. I don't really, I don't really care what's going on. And um, we don't want to fall on either one of those extremes. And so that's why I felt four weeks uh, just kind of giving you a 50,000-foot uh, view of prophecy uh, would be good, and then challenging you to go further uh, on your own. The whole subject of eschatology or the study of things to come is vast, and I want you to understand that it's very complex. And it's difficult to single out one aspect or event because they're all interrelated. And you're going to find that to be true this morning. I know a number of you, when I get done this morning, you're going to go, wow, but he didn't talk about this and he didn't talk about that. I understand. And for this reason, I want to encourage you again to be self-feeders, self-feeders, all right? And you know, if you've been around here any length of time, what I mean by self-feeders. There's no way in a four-week series, for example, here in eschatology, that I could teach you everything that Scripture says about the end. So you need to make sure that you're studying on your own. Now, I've got a couple of books that are there in your notes. If you look at the bottom there this morning that I want to challenge you maybe uh, to get. Uh, this is one that just was published in, uh, in July of 2011. It's called End Times uh, Prophecy. And it's uh, put together uh, by a guy by the name of Dr. Uh, Timothy Paul Jones. Uh, he's a professor at Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, Kentucky. And you will thoroughly enjoy this. I know not all of you hold to uh, every uh, smidgen of eschatology that I do. Some of you have a little different view on some things. And as I mentioned to you last week, I'm okay with that. Uh, what this does is this goes through and I think gives a good handle on a lot of those areas in which uh, theologians typically disagree on. This would be great for you. Now you say, is it really simple? Is it really easy? Uh, no, I, I'd say this is kind of like chewing on a steak or maybe some uh, eating some broccoli or cauliflower. Some of it you're not going to like. In fact, uh, Now that I think about it, I don't ever like broccoli and cauliflower, so that's probably not a good analogy because some of this is really good, and you ought to chew on this. Um, But it will make you think, and it will give you a good overview of of eschatology. And for those of you that are interested, or even I would say as a new believer, if you want to dive into this, you may need some help along the way, but this will be a good thing. Another one uh, that is written uh, by Dr. David Jeremiah, I know a number of you have appreciated his ministry on the radio and TV over the years. Uh, this is a very simple book, all right? And I think Dr. Jeremiah would say that. Uh, it's just simply called the Prophecy Answer Book, and very simple but excellent, excellent. It'll go through and ask questions. I'm just going to open the page here, and it says, will Christ return at the rapture? And then he goes through and answers that question. Here's another uh, question. What is the meaning of the word millennium? Uh, he'll go through and he'll explain those things uh, to you. So either one of those, and there are probably a number of good things out there. There are definitely a number of good things out there. I just want to recommend a couple to you because uh, I know some of you are a little bit leery, and I'm glad that you are about just going on Amazon and searching prophecy and going, oh, I think I'll order these two. 
right? That might thoroughly get you confused, all right? But these are a couple that I have a lot of confidence in, and if you want to get one of those, uh, that would uh, that'd be great. I know for some of you also, and I got some feedback uh, last week, that this series is introducing a lot of new material, and not to mention uh, many new words. And it's very easy for me and for others um, maybe that uh, have walked with the Lord for a little longer than some of the rest of you, it's very easy for us just to assume that cert- certain terminology is understood. And for, for this reason, I want to begin this morning where we ended last week with the rapture, and I want to quickly move you through the next 1,007 years of the prophetic calendar. Now, I know you get scared by that, um, but I'm going to walk you through in about four minutes, 1,007 years, all right? So, uh, Mike, why don't you put that, uh, that chart up? This is in your, uh, in your study notes today. You can look down and you can see it there. By the way, you can turn it over and you can write notes on the white side there. But I wanted to give you a couple of these charts. Uh, the Bible has a lot, to, a lot to say about the end times. In fact, nearly every book of the Bible contains prophecy regarding the end times. And taking all of these prophecies and organizing them can be a very, very difficult proposition. And so what, I, what we've done here is just kind of given you a brief summary of what the Bible declares will happen at the end times. You'll notice that we talked about last week that Christ... Well, Christ's first coming, you can see there, uh, was at the cross. That's when he, uh, Bill uh, referred to it this morning. That was the incarnation. That was God becoming man, being born of a virgin, and then living amongst us for 33 years, and then going to Calvary to suffer and bleed and die on a cross for our salvation. That was Christ's first coming. We're in that section uh, now marked uh, today. Uh, Some people, if you're a dispensationalist, you might refer to that as the church age or the age of grace Uh, That's where uh, we are uh, right now. We talked last week about that event that we call the rapture, and that's when Christ will remove all born-again Christians from the earth in an event that uh, we know is the rapture. And the church is made up of all of us who have trusted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus to save us from our sins. That means we're trusting in Christ alone as our Savior, nothing else. The rapture will take place, and the dead in Christ, 1 Thessalonians says, will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to be with the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now somebody said to me uh, last week in a question, well, what, uh, what happens, you know, I thought when we died, we went to be with Jesus. Well, we do. Our spirit, our soul goes to be with Jesus. Our body is in the ground. That's probably why my dad said before he went to be with the Lord, hey, I have no request except for don't spend any money on a funeral. Well, that's not really possible, Right now, here in, in, in our country, not to spend any money on a funeral, but his point was that's not me. I'm gone. I'm no longer here. I'm with Jesus. That's just the old worn out shell there. So do whatever you want to with it. Well, we had a burial for my father, and his body, his earthly temple, is in a grave now. But at the rapture, the second coming, the, the second coming of Christ, he will be caught up and he'll be joined uh, together uh, in the air. Now, during this uh, time after the rapture, we're going to be up in heaven, those of us that are Christ followers, and there's going to be a couple of things going on. Uh, The first is the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Other texts refer to it as the Bema. We're going to talk about uh, that uh, next week. Um, We're not going to be judged of whether or not we spend eternity in heaven or hell. That's when our works, our motives, the motives for what we did and why we did it will be judged. You've heard it said that God is a consuming fire, and he is just that, which means if our works have been simply, as Paul said to the church at Corinth, simply wood, hay, and stubble, they're going to be consumed. If, however, we did what we did with proper motive, and we did what we did to honor and glorify Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we'll receive crowns, we'll receive rewards, 
which we will inevitably want to throw at the feet of Jesus, the one who saved us. That's going to be happening, and also it's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's when we're going to have those chicken nachos from Lost Trace. They're going to cater that. It's going to be awesome. These guys are going, really? I never heard that before. This is good stuff. That's not true, but there is going to be a buffet there. It's going to be awesome. We're going to do, be doing what we do best as Christians, right? I mean, we're going to be eating. We're going to be enjoying that during this whole time that we're going to talk about this morning that is known as the tribulation. The Antichrist, or sometimes referred to the beast, will come into power and will sign a covenant with Israel for seven years. That's in Jan- Daniel chapter 9. If you've got your Bible open there, you can see down through verses 24 to 27. That seven-year period is known as the tribulation. And during the tribulation, there's going to be wars, there's going to be famine, plagues, natural uh, disasters. God's going to be pouring out his wrath on this planet. And at the end of the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist will launch a final attack on Jerusalem, and that will culminate in the battle of Armageddon. Jesus Christ is going to return then at that point with us. He's going to return to the earth. He's going to destroy the Antichrist and his armies and cast them into the lake of fire, Revelation 19. Christ is then going to bind Satan in the abyss for a thousand years, and he's going to rule his earthly kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. And that's going to be awesome. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, refer to the millennial kingdom. We refer to this as the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, some would say, um, some good friends of mine would say, that we are now living in the millennial kingdom. If you've heard somebody refer to themselves as an amillennialist, they would, they would tend to say that we're living in that thousand-year period right now. I don't believe that that's true. You know, there are places in Scripture, for example, in the book of Isaiah, that talk about how in the millennial kingdom, the lion will lie down with the lamb. So if you believe that we're now living in the millennial kingdom, I ask you to do an experiment. Go to the zoo, throw a lamb into the cage, and see what happens. I think you'll figure out pretty quickly that we're not living in the millennial kingdom just yet. There's other passages of scriptures refer to children literally playing with vipers. Go out and find some copperheads in your backyard and have your two-year-old play with them. I think you'll figure out very quickly, ah, we're not in the millennial kingdom. That's free of charge. I don't give any extra for that, all right? That's just kind of a little really simple argument you can use for uh, those friends that uh, may refer to themselves as a millennialist. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be released. He's going to be defeated again and then cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. He's going to be cast there for eternity. Christ then judges all unbelievers, Revelation 20, verses 10 to 15. This is what we refer to as the great white throne judgment, along with the Bema seat, Next week, we're going to be talking about the great white throne judgment. And so at the great white throne judgment, all of those who have failed to trust in Christ alone as the payment of their sin will receive the eternal punishment in payment for their sin into the lake of fire. Christ then returns, ushers in a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem, the eternal dwell, which is the eternal dwelling place of uh, believers. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more sorrow, Revelation 21 and 22. And that, my friends, is 1,007 years in about six minutes. You say, wow, there's got to be a lot more than that. Well, there is, so buckle up. It's been, uh, become very commonplace in our culture for us to use the term Armageddon. In fact, in the fall of 2008, if you were watching uh, your 401k uh, go like this and you were wondering if there was actually going to be money in your bank. If you, if you went there and you put your ATM card in there, was there going to be some of you that follow the financial markets probably understand this better than, than some. 
But many, many uh, financial gurus, pundits on the TV stations were referring to what was happening in the fall of 2008. We were this far, they said, from financial Armageddon. And that's when our Congress uh, decided to act and spend a bunch of money. And because of that, we're doing great today. Yeah, they refer to that as financial Armageddon. And then, not too long after that, or maybe even a little bit before that, you heard somebody refer to as a, a snowmageddon. Remember what snowmageddon was? Snowmageddon is what happened just a couple weeks ago in one town that I heard on the CBS Evening News that had 18 feet of snow. That's snowmageddon. And then, as only L.A. can do, they had Carmageddon not too long ago. That was when they were going to shut down a portion of the 405, and they thought, it is going to be, and the media said, Carmageddon. Every highway, every road is going to be like a parking lot. It seems like our secular media is kind of infatuated with this term Armageddon. And yet I've asked myself the question over the last few years, I wonder if most people actually know what Armageddon is, what they're referring to when they use that terminology. Most have no knowledge or very little knowledge or understanding just how significant that last great battle is here on this planet that Scripture refers to as the Battle of Armageddon. That is the concluding event of the seven years that the Bible refers to as the Tribulation. Now I'm going to flash another uh, slide on the screen. You'll also see this in your notes. and I'm going to walk you through here uh, very quickly and not totally completely, but I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture along the way. I'm going to walk you through the Tribulation period. Now, within eschatology, and remember, when we refer to eschatology, it's just a, 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 a big word, a Bible college seminary word that basically means future things, the study of future things, the study of the end. The tribulation refers to the full seven-year period, while the great tribulation, which sometimes you hear that terminology used, that refers to the last three and a half years of the tribulation when things will intensify even greater than they have been in the first three and a half years. And throughout Scripture, the tribulation is referred to with uh, many different names. It's referred to as the day of the Lord in Isaiah and Joel. It's referred to as the trouble uh, or tribulation in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Zephaniah 1. It's referred to the great tribulation, which again, I, I said to you, refers more to the last three and a half years in Matthew chapter 24. In Daniel 12 and in Zephaniah 1, it's referred to as the day of trouble. Jeremiah 30, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, it's very important for you, if you're going to understand the tribulation, it's important for you to uh, have a good understanding of Daniel chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, uh, look there at Daniel chapter 9 and verses 24 to 27. It's really necessary for you to understand this in order to understand the purpose and the time of the tribulation. Now, you've got to focus here really, really, really intensely here for just a few moments. Then you can turn me off again until I tell you to, we're going to turn on again, Okay. Uh, An understanding of this is very important. This passage speaks of 70 weeks that have been declared against your people. Now, your people, Daniel's people, are the Jews, the nation of Israel. Daniel 9.24 speaks of a period of time that God has given basically to finish things. God declares that 77s will fulfill all these things. This is 77s of years. So 70 times 7, which is 490. Some translations refer to 70 weeks of years. This is confirmed by another part of this passage in Daniel. In verses 25 and 26, Daniel is told that the Messiah will be cut off after seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's 69 uh, total. 
beginning with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. In other words, 69 sevens of years would be how much? See if anybody's paying attention. Be 483 years after after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. The Messiah will be cut off. Now, most Christian scholars, regardless of their view of eschatology, no matter what view of the rapture they hold, no matter what view of the millennial kingdom they hold, have the above understanding of Daniel's 70 weeks. Most Bible historians confirm that 483 years passed from the time of the decree to rebuild the temple and the time when Jesus was crucified. You with me so far? So with 483 years having passed from the decree to rebuild uh, Jerusalem to the cutting off the Messiah, that leaves one seven-year period to be fulfilled in terms of Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. Look at that verse specifically, and you'll notice the purpose of this time, the purpose of that seven-year period of time that you see up there on the screen that we refer to as the tribulation. Daniel writes, it's to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to, ste- to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And so that's what we refer to. We refer to the tribulation period. Now Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 gives a few highlights of that seven-year tribulation period. He'll confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This is the Antichrist. The Antichrist comes into power, Antichrist being basically a very simple term meaning Antichrist. He is opposed to Christ. You may have heard uh, this referred to at times as the unholy trinity. You know, we have the trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This would be the unholy trinity. This would be Satan, uh, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. That would be the unholy trinity. The Antichrist comes into power and he signs a covenant with Israel for seven years. And he's a very likable guy, by the way. He's very suave. He has, a, he has a way with his words and people trust him and they believe in him. And if you can understand that at the beginning of the tribulation, when the rapture has happened, you can imagine the turmoil, right? You can imagine the turmoil that has taken place when literally billions of people have disappeared from the face of the earth. And so the Antichrist comes in and for a time... People look at him and they trust him and they believe him and and they really believe that he wants to take care of them. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 says that the beast will come, he'll make a covenant for seven years, but in the middle of this week, in other words, at the three and a half year point in the tribulation, he's going to break the covenant. He's going to put a stop to sacrifice. And Revelation 13 explains that the beast will place an image of himself in the temple and require the world to worship him. It's at that point that there are many that begin to go, he's not really who he's advertised himself to be. Daniel 9.27 says that when that happens in the middle of the week, in Revelation 13.5 says the beast will do this for a period of 42 months. It's easy to see then that the total of that period of time is 84 months or 7 years. It's at that time, by the way, and we don't have time to park here, and I know some of you would like to because you're intrigued by these things, but it's at that time that the Antichrist, the false prophet actually, will require uh, that mark of the beast that you've heard referred to. When you've looked on those barcodes and gone, that's it. It's the mark of the beast. In fact, in that number down there, I see 666. It's at that particular moment that the Antichrist will require that. Revelation 13, verses 16 to 17 says this, 
And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, there was a time when we thought, well, that, that's kind of crazy. That's going to be a little bit impossible. I mean, how, would, how would you do that? Imagine people reading this text 500 years ago. They would have thought that would have been a very odd thing. Let me ask you this morning, do you think that that's a very odd thing or a very hard thing to accomplish? I guess not. You've, you've heard of the chips right now that are being implanted in our pets, right? They put that little chip in there, and uh, Fido walks around, and if Fido's lost, we go, bing, 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 bing. Uh, he's down by the river. That's where he is. And Fido, <laughs> I'm here to see you, because he's got that little chip implanted there. In fact, have you tried to go into some businesses and, and try to hand them a $20 bill or a $100 bill and try to pay for something? And they go, what's that? We don't want 20 bucks. We don't want 100 bucks. Don't you have a Visa, a MasterCard, Discover, something, plastic? You see, our world is already set up for that mark. For us living in 2011, we have absolutely no problem accepting that that will happen, and probably fairly soon. Next, I want to refer to what you see down there towards the bottom of the chart. You see the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And, and for many of you, again, who have never studied eschatology, you're going, what the heck is that? What does that mean? Boy, I'm glad that he's teaching on a pre-trib rapture and I know Jesus because I, I don't want to be here. All right, let me explain those to you. The seven seals, which are found in Revelation 6, and the seven trumpets in Revelation 8, and the seven bowls in Revelation 16, are three succeeding series of end-time judgments from God. And here's what you'll find, and I'm going to go through them very quickly here this morning, but here's what you'll find if you have time to go back and study them later, that the judgments get progressively worse and more devastating as the end times progress. The seven seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, they're all connected to one another. If you total those up, obviously if you do three times seven, that would be 21. And if you took 21 into 84 months, it would give us the idea that about every four months, there is some uh, cataclysmic event that is happening on this planet. Now stop for just a moment and think about that. Uh, think with me for, for a moment. Uh, two years ago when we had the earthquake, it was almost exactly two years ago, when we had the earthquake in Haiti. Remember how devastating that was to that small island, a nation in the Caribbean? Imagine something of that magnitude happening literally all over the globe. And then four months later, imagine an event uh, like we saw happen in Japan about a year ago. Imagine that event and how devastating that was to the country of Japan Imagine that happening all over the globe four months after that earthquake. And then four months later, something just as devastating. That's kind of what you have to get in your mind when you understand these 21 judgments that will be poured out during the tribulation period. There are seven seals. Those are found in Revelation uh, chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. And even as I'm talking, you can read. But the first seal introduces the Antichrist. By the way, these four first seals also introduced to us the, uh, the four horsemen that referred to the apocalypse. You, you've heard that said before, that this is where this comes from. The first seal introduces the Antichrist. The second seal causes great warfare. The third of the seven seals causes famine. And the fourth seal brings about a plague and further famine and further warfare. 
It's at that point that if you were to read scripture, you would find that during this time, about a quarter of the world's population actually dies during this period of time. A quarter of the world's population. Uh, Today, that would be somewhere around uh, the figure of 1.8 billion people that die. The fifth seal tells us that those who will be martyred for their faith in Christ, tells us of those who will be martyred for their faith in Christ during the end times. Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When the sixth of the seven seals is broken, a devastating earthquake occurs and it causes massive upheaval and terrible devastation along with unusual astronomical phenomena that are happening as well. You, you remember about, I think it was two years ago, when there was an oil spill down in the Gulf. And Do you remember the pictures that you saw that satellites took of the, of the slick of oil? If you can imagine, if you can imagine earthquakes happening all over the globe during this period of time, you can imagine the oil pipelines that will be breaking, the storage units that will be breaking. When the sixth seal is broken, those devastating earthquakes uh, occur. And then the seven trumpets are described in Revelation 8, 6 to 21. The seven trumpets are the contents of the seventh seal. When we get into the seven trumpets, the first trumpet causes hail and fire that destroys much of the plant life in the world. Imagine how devastating that would be. The second trumpet brings about what seems to be a meteor hitting the oceans and causing the death of much of the world's sea life. Scientists tell us all the time that there are uh, meteors and and asteroids and things of that sort that are falling uh, on the planet in different places and that most of the time they fall harmlessly. Well, this will be an event where they they won't fall harmlessly. The third trumpet is similar to the second, except it affects the world's lakes and rivers instead of the oceans. The fourth of the seven trumpets causes the sun and moon to be darkened. The fifth trumpet results in a plague of demonic locusts that attack and torture humanity. The sixth trumpet releases a demonic army that kills a third of humanity. That is a third of humanity that's left after a quarter has already been destroyed during the uh, fourth seal. The seventh trumpet calls for the seven angels with the seven bowls of God's wrath. These are the last seven judgments that will occur during the tribulation. These are referred to as the seven bowls. Maybe some of you have studied them and referred to them as the seven vials. These are the judgments that are described in Revelation 16, verses 1 to 21. The seven bowl judgments are called forth by the seventh trumpet. The first bowl causes painful sores to break out on humanity. The second bowl results in the death of every living living thing in the sea. The third bowl causes the rivers to turn to blood, Revelation 16, verses 4 to 7. The fourth of the seven bowls results in the sun's heat being intensified and causing great pain. That's when those people that believe in global warming, they will understand there was something to global warming. That event will take place at that particular moment. The fifth bowl causes great darkness and intensification of the sores from the first bowl. The sixth bowl results in the Euphrates River being dried up and the armies of the Antichrist being gathered together to wage war at the Battle of Armageddon that concluding event. The seventh bowl results in a devastating earthquake followed by by giant hailstones. You'd be interested maybe to read in Revelation chapter 16, verses 15 to 21, as you get to the end of that particular text. It says that there'll be hailstones, some of them weighing as much as 100 pounds. It's fairly safe to assume that these will be cataclysmic events on our planet. 
Imagine things of that sort happening every four months for seven years. Revelation chapter 16, verses 5 to 7 declares of God, You are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you've so judged, for they've shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you've given them the blood to drink as they deserve. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, some of you are sitting here this morning and you're going, Man, I want to go hear that guy on TV speak. He says nice things. He'll remain nameless. I want to go hear him. I mean, this doesn't sound good. I mean, we came here to be encouraged this morning. Well, hold on. You're going to be encouraged. But just for a moment, what I want you to do, the guy who is the consummate believer in the glass being half full, I want you to understand that you need to stop for a moment and you need to understand that should you be left behind at the rapture, those you love, those you work with, those who are in your neighborhood, those who are in your circle of influence, should they be left behind at the rapture? This is God's plan for the end. I think it's very easy for us, very easy just to simply stop and go, that doesn't affect me. When if you believe this to be true, as I do based on the study of God's Word, it ought to motivate you to share the gospel with those in your circle of influence. Now, that end of the tribulation I referred to uh, earlier when I gave you the 1,007-year overview of eschatology, the word Armageddon comes from the Hebrew word Har-Mageddon, which means Mount Megiddo and has become synonymous with the future battle in which God will intervene and destroy the armies of the Antichrist, as predicted in Revelation 16 and chapter 20. Now, the exact location of uh, the valley of Armageddon is unclear because there is actually no mountain called Megiddo. However, since Har, that part of that uh, Hebrew word, means hill, most Bible scholars that believe that the most likely location is the hill country surrounding the plain of Megiddo, some 60 miles north of Jerusalem. It's interesting to note, and by the way, we don't have time to park here this morning, but if you look back at how many battles have actually taken place uh, in that, that valley, more than 200 significant battles since the Old Testament have actually taken place there in that particular region. And because of this history, the Valley of Armageddon has become a symbol of the final conflict between God and those evil forces. The word Armageddon only occurs, by the way, in Revelation chapter 16, and verse 16, where it says, they gathered the kings together to that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This speaks of the kings who are loyal uh, to the Antichrist. They're gathering for their final assault on who? On Israel. They're gathering for their final assault on Israel. Now, now let me stop uh, for just a moment as we, we come to the, to the end of our time this morning. Is there anybody, again, that doesn't believe that the next event on the prophetic calendar is obviously the rapture. Would it be so difficult for you to believe, just like I mentioned about the mark of the beast, how far we've come in technology and the understanding of that, would it be very difficult for you to believe that there would actually be many nations that would rise up for a final assault against Israel? Just this week I heard in the news, and I'm sure many of you did, if you're people who uh, like the news, I heard about uh, the uh, nuclear scientist that was uh, assassinated I was killed in Iran. And immediately, 
Iran cried out, it's the United States, it's Israel. I don't know whether it is Israel or the United States. It wouldn't surprise me if it was. That is, as I did a little bit of study this week, that's about the fifth nuclear scientist that has been killed, that has been assassinated. Is it so difficult to believe that there's a time coming when the nations of the earth will gather together as a final assault on God's chosen people, the nation of Israel? Is that really so hard for us to believe? Now, the human purpose of this battle is to gather the armies of the world to execute uh, the Antichrist, his final solution to the Jewish problem, which is and has been for many years the annihilation of the Jewish population. Jesus Christ chooses this particular moment in history for his second coming to the earth. Remember I told you last week there's a difference between the rapture and the second coming. You'll notice all the way at the right-hand side of the chart, the second coming of Christ right there at the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus chooses this moment in history to come to earth to thwart the Antichrist's attempt to annihilate the Jews, and also he's going to destroy the armies of the world. This is that final judgment. Now, this is a horrific battle. This is unlike our world has ever seen. If you were to put all the battles, all the wars that that have ever been waged on this planet since the beginning of mankind, they would pale into insignificance compared to this great battle that is going to take place there in Megiddo. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 20 says that the blood will flow up to a horse's bridle for approximately 200 miles. It will be horrific. It's the battle of all battles. But it is at that point that God's final judgment will be delivered and the Antichrist and his followers will be overthrown and they will be defeated. The language of Scripture, by the way, is incredibly vivid. If you have your Bible, turn again to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16 as I close. By the way, heaven's coming. We're going to be there in two weeks, all right? So just hang with me. I know when we talk about this, you're going, oh, man, I'll be glad when we get to the book of Nehemiah in February. Nehemiah's got to be encouraging compared to this. Well, remember, if you know Jesus, you're not here. But in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, I love this passage of Scripture. Let me read it for you. Now I saw heaven, this is John speaking, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Guess who that is? Woo! That's us! I'm going to be on a white horse someday. I've ridden a horse, and the one I rode I really didn't like, and he wasn't white. But one day, one day, that's going to be me. And they followed him on a white horse. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, that's how it ends. 
You might mock the name of Jesus Christ right now. You may have people that are your acquaintances, maybe even people that live in your home that may mock the name of Jesus. But let me tell you, my friends, there's coming a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is who he said he was. What an ending. But what a beginning. Because that is the beginning of that thousand-year reign. When you can throw the little lamb in there with the lion, and the lion will go up and they will lie next to each other. When the little child will be out in the backyard and will be playing with the snake. 1,000 years of peace. A tragic ending, but an incredible beginning. You say, well, how do you conclude all that? Well, I conclude it just simply. If you look at the big idea in our notes this morning, I conclude it very simply, and that is this. Understanding the events of the tribulation should motivate us to live and to share the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, the greatest thing that could happen to you this morning is is to say, I don't want to be part of that. Bow your knee and confess him as your Lord and Savior. To bow now means to spend eternity with him in heaven. To bow later simply means to acknowledge what he has imprinted on your heart since the beginning of time. Understanding the events of the tribulation should motivate us to live and to share the gospel. These things should not motivate you just to be intrigued with things like you are when you drive down the highway and you see a horrific accident and you immediately want to turn and look. That's not the motivation that we're talking about. We're talking a motivation that says, Jesus loved me enough that he suffered and bled and died on a cross to pay the penalty, to pay the price for my sin. I escaped that, and I want everybody to hear that good news. That's why in a few weeks, a couple guys and I, we're going to travel to Kenya and we're going to go out there into the bush and we're going to talk with those pastors that we support who are sharing the good news of the gospel, even have today already with those people out in the bush in the middle of nowhere in Kenya because we want them to know and understand the good news of the gospel. That's why we won't stay gathered in this auditorium here in just a few moments. We will scatter all over this community. Why? So we can live our lives, drive our nice cars, live in our nice homes, watch our big screen TVs? No, so that we might live out and we might share the good news of the gospel. If there's anything that studying the tribulation does, it's it motivates me to live and share the good news of the gospel.